Good morning and welcome to the very first episode of the new PL Monthly Business Book Review Club. I'm Paul, your host. We'll be publishing this new podcast mini series 12 times over the next 12 months, usually on the last Thursday of each month, with each episode reviewing and speaking to one or two authors on their latest books, their latest releases. We have some fantastic authors lined up over the next few months to speak to and some amazing books to review, recommend to you, and discuss how they can benefit you and your business. The new PL Monthly Business Book Review Club has been sponsored by the Carroll Consultancy Group, who dramatically develop people, performance, and profits. If you want to accelerate your business growth in 2021, go to carrollconsultancy.com and you'll find the links to the Carroll Consultancy and how you can get in touch with them and the notes that accompany this podcast. We're really grateful for the Carroll Consultancy's sponsorship of this new mini-series, so please do take a moment to check out the links and look at the programs and the initiatives the Carroll Consultancy offers. Our first authors in the inaugural episode of the new PL Monthly Business Book Review Club are Minta Dial and Peggy McColl. We're going to start today's episode by speaking to Minta Dial, an award-winning filmmaker, author, keynote speaker, and leadership and brand strategy expert. Minter was also formerly head of Redken Worldwide, part of the L'Oreal Group. And we'll be speaking today to Minter about his new book titled, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And this great book discusses and explores how embracing your whole self at work encourages other people to also be themselves and helps everyone to seek true fulfillment at work and the merging of the professional and the personal so we can all become true examples of what we stand for. Following our conversation with Minter, we'll be speaking to Peggy McColl, world-renowned wealth, business and manifestation expert, and New York Times bestselling author, who has also recently released her latest book, her 19th book, and this is titled Savvy Wisdom. And it's a parable that offers some deep personal insights for all of us as people, as entrepreneurs, as employees and business leaders. Just a quick note before we start, if you'd like to order a copy of either Minter or Peggy's book, I invite you to click the links in the notes that accompany this podcast and purchase one of their books through the bookshop on our own website, on the new PL website. Because if you do, a small percentage goes to us, the new PL, which will help keep this show on the road. So let's start with our conversation with Minter Dial. Minter, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Thank you. We're here today to um, discuss your brilliant new book, which I've had the pleasure of reading over the last couple of weeks. So I think just to sort of set the, the tone for the conversation, just a quick fire summary of the name of your book, what it delivers and who it delivers it for. Uh, you lead, a subtitle, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. The attempt is to open up these sort of kimono about how to be a leader, starting with you at home with yourself and why and how you need to bring more and full self to work as a leader. In terms of target audience, if I had a subtitle, another subtitle, it might be you lead you. So anybody needs to be a leader of themselves. And so the audience can be anybody who's doing anything, whether you're a solopreneur or working in a large organization. And obviously, uh, also very useful for the people at the top of the organization. Yeah. I completely agree with the, the central premise of the book that, you know, being more authentic selves make, makes us better leaders. 
I guess my, my thinking around that would be in order to be truly ourselves as leaders, we need to have a good dose of self-awareness, which for a variety of reasons is not always abundant in, in some of us. Um, and the nature of leadership in a business sometimes actively mitigates or works against encouraging self-awareness. So I wanted to start the conversation by sort of seeking your advice on how leaders, first of all, measure their own sense of self-awareness as the first step to getting back to the essence of who they are. How do they, I guess, work out where they are in that journey, if you like? All right. Well, so I have uh, three ideas. The first one is how much time have you actually spent on it? Basically in a dark room, only focus on this. How many Pomodoro technique moments, 25 minutes or more, have you only thought about this? The second one is how aware are you that you're lying to yourself? Because you are. We have this pall of intellectual, the ability to rationalize everything we do and think we're better than we are. There's a poll I did on empathy. 10,000 people have answered it. And 73% of the individuals find that they have either an above average or well above average level of empathy. So our ability to be reasonably genuine and honest with ourselves is by definition a little bit um, self-congratulatory. And the third thing is once you, let's say, have carved out, spent the time to think about yourself, go and find some people who are prepared to give you tough love. A, Mm -hmm. do you have people who give you tough love, can tell you the shit the way it is, and then B, ask them and work with them. And by the way, maybe what they're telling you is some part of true, some part of wrong, but think about how you're responding to what they're telling you and how much it tells you about yourself. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in your book uh, that you wrote some of this at least last year through the, the course of the pandemic and some of the social movements and momentum that was created by those movements like Black Lives Matter and so on. You suggest that the pandemic and these social movements are setting the scene for or laying the foundations for a for a new form of leadership. I wanted to, I guess, ask a slightly provocative question. In your view, whether we need a new form of leadership or whether we need just a new generation of leaders? Hmm. So I think it's, it's really about a new form of leadership to the extent that I'm really thinking about our individuals. And so that's like basically 100% of everybody could be leading their lives and the way that they work in different ways. Of course, you can, you know, the retired people, let's not not exaggerate the propensity I'm looking about. I wanted to just push back on one thing, Paul, which is actually, I wrote this entire book and delivered the manuscript finished seven days to the day before the pandemic, the lockdown in the UK started. So that's Mm -hmm. in March. Then the, then my editor publisher was furloughed. Uh, for for the four months until July, they reappeared. And during that time, I I readjusted just to add in some flavors in trying to anticipate what state of mind we'd be in the day that the actual book was published, which was January 2021. So the the challenge was, A, making sure it's contextually viable, and two, getting into the minds of the people who are reading it as they're sitting in their lockdown spaces, wherever they are. And, And my point was, up until the date of delivery of the manuscript, i.e. pre-pandemic, was that we need a new form of leadership, mm-hmm. not just because of the pandemic. And, and what does that mean? Well, it, it essentially the reason why we need it is that a study after study show that 
70% of employees are disengaged. So if we've been writing gazillions of leadership books, they clearly haven't sussed that out. And one of the big things I think we see is that the people at the top who are still going to be there, they are living on a different kind of dream. They've got a, a different idea, which is all about efficiencies and performance. And they don't really feel the need to work on themselves because, hey, listen, I've got 30 years of success. Look at this. Why do I need to change? And, and they model the behavior that sculpts the rest. So just as much as you, underneath you might want to until mm-hmm. the top has actually gotten with the program. And that includes the people they've trained who are, let's say, 30, 40 years old. So the cascading effect is, is forever going to be there. So we need to start from the top and, and start understanding that we need to be our whole selves, not 100% transparent, because that's a ridiculous notion, yeah. not desirable, but more transparent, more authentic in order to create that trust and tap into the discretionary energy of yourself so you don't burn out and your team. So you've alluded to staying critical in your book and in terms of a key element of recognizing that authenticity or working towards that authenticity within yourself and helping leaders to get back to the essence of who they are. And I guess in common parlance, that's kind of a a reality check in ourselves and and, and in a daily or a weekly basis. But to touch on the point I've just raised in terms of self-awareness, staying critical relies on self-awareness. Self-awareness relies on being focused and super present and in the moment, as you've just alluded to as well. And that relies in turn on giving yourself the, the space to think, to analyze, to process your thoughts, and also critically the assumptions upon which you have those thoughts or base those thoughts. And all of this requires time. And a lot of the leaders I speak to in the podcast That's the one thing they all tell me they lack for a variety of reasons. So I wonder whether, or I'd like to get your view on whether one of the biggest challenges leaders face today is a fundamental conflict at the heart of that leadership, that we have a complexity and a multiplicity of challenges facing leaders, which require self-awareness, perspective and introspection, but they don't have the time, the one thing they need to address all of these challenges with the the introspection and the perspective that they need. So with all due respect, Paul, I think everybody knows that there are only 24 hours in the day. Yeah. And of course, there are some countries that have more light and less light. So everybody knows that. What I think they're missing is a roadmap to understand how to allocate their time strategically. Right. And so we're like, like all these people, like, I don't know about you, but... I have, and I, and I can suffer from this just as much as Jim and jo- Jane is having a million tabs open. Why do I have that? Well, I got to get to that later. I'll say, when, when does it move up the, the to-do list? Like I'm going to open that tab and I'm going to read that article or no, I'll put it in a to-do list. So just like I, you know, my desk, my, and I have this by my bed, I have a stack of books. And, and some, they pile up and gets worse and worse. And I think, oh, I got to keep the good one on top. And then at one point, I'm like, I give up. I have, I have 10. I, I take eight, put them into the bookshelf, and I leave only two. Yeah. And little by little, they come up again. Point is this, is that how are you strategically allocating your time to do what you got to do? How are you making those choices? And, and one of the, so I, I talk about this whole program of figuring out what your North Star is. If you can figure out what your North Star is, then it's going to be a lot easier to get rid of the things which are nice to have. 
I can justify rationally, but actually don't get me on my journey to who I want to be. Because it, it's very simple. We, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day. He, he, he said, I, well, uh, I met him on Lunch Club. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I'm, um, I'm head of innovation at an insurance company. I said, oh, that's great. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. I said, sure. So I, I, did you, you chose this? No, it was proposed to me when I got out of school. Uh-huh. So uh, what happens is that we, we end up with this plethora of choices. We end up with something and we justify it. It's really interesting. I love the challenge. The people are great. But you don't give a toss about the insurance component, or you might. But if you haven't done that check-in mm -hmm. and why it's part of who you are and who you want to be in the future, then you're just going to, you know, let's say, do the business, get the title, get the car. And then at one point, you're going to hit a brick wall and say, oh, fuck. I've missed my life. Yeah. You you discuss the increasingly important role of employee evangelists in your book as well, uh, and the role that they can play in positive advocacy for the brand. Um, I wondered, how does a leader strike the balance between encouraging advocacy in this regard on the one hand, um, which has at its heart the freedom of the employee expression, um, but at the other side, of the coin, the need for the leader to either accept or somehow control and manage the messaging that sits behind that advocacy to ensure that the brand reputation is not inadvertently damaged in the process. It's a very delicate balancing act to, to offer that advocacy and freedom, but still ensure that there's a, there's a positive reflection on the brand at the same time. Hmm. Well, this gets to the heart of the messiness of communications <laughs> and trust. Um, as soon as you start saying, I want to control the messaging, that's a red flag. Yep. You need to then think about why you need to control it. And what are you, what are you trying to control? Uh, do you have other things you need to be working on? And, and is, are those ethical questions in which case, uh Oh, bigger red flag, or they're just inconsistencies. For example, we're trying to do too many things. We're hashtagging everything. Well, you haven't done some strategic work on who you want to be. And until that's clear to you as the leader, then it's very unlikely that your employees are going to say exactly what you want to say, because yeah. you haven't told them, you haven't instructed them, you haven't been strategic in, in telling them and helping them understand. And then this whole idea of, of um, you know, controlling the message. Well, ultimately, it's a very messy thing. And you know, to, to wit, there's a, there was a study I was reading about recently that said, in America, the most trusted and purposeful brands, too, were listed in this large survey uh, were Amazon and Walmart. Uh, and at the same time, in another question in the same survey, uh, they, they, they were the least trusted, least purposeful mm. brands. So the point is that you can end up being on both ends of the spectrum and the narrative is out there and it's impossible to control. Your best bet is to try to be true to you and have that be the thing and know that someone's going to say, Minter, you're full of shit. Yeah. So as much as I'm trying to lead me and, and be authentic, of course I've got naysayers. I mean, that's just life. There's no way to control all that. Yeah. But your hope is you've got to do what you say. Better to do it than say what you did. And the ideal is you do what you want to, and, and then say it, but have other people say what you do. Yes. And, and so what does that mean? Well, if you want your employees to talk about you in a good way, well, you have to model that behavior. And what does that mean? Well, you don't need to be like silicone perfect in the way you speak. But if you can resonate with what you're talking about at a deeper level, 
for example, um, let's say I'm running a brand. I, you know, specifically, I worked in hairdressing, right? I was, I was selling hair, hair care products to hairdressers. And oftentimes I would invoke stories of my, how my stepmother, sorry, my uh, mother-in-law, <laughs> my mother-in-law, who was French, her experience going to the hairdresser and, and what she talked about. So I was trying to make it personal. And if you can tap into personal stories, personal relationships with the stories you're telling, that's giving permission to your employees to tell their versions, their ver And of course, they're not gonna be exactly what you want, but by gum, they'll be more real and therefore more trustworthy when they're delivering at a dinner party with their friends, wherever they are in their personal lives. And that's what you need to spread. Yeah. You, you discuss um, in your book, I guess the underestimated role of cultural transformation and the, and the role that that plays or should play or needs to play in digital transformation. And it's a topic that we continually end up discussing time and time again on the new PL because it is often neglected in that digital transformation project. I wanted to sort of solicit your view and, and why you think that is, you know, do, do leaders have a miss understanding of the impact of digital transformation by itself do they get do they think that it's going to transform a business by magic and simply as a result of its implementation do they lack the digital maturity to understand where it slots into business are they starstruck by that technology or the complexity of it and the relationship between it and culture why do you think time and time again we see in business that there is a digital transformation without the cultural transformation that needs to sit alongside it short answer is yes <laughs> i mean so it's a vast question but um I, I, there are a few things that go into why these transformation programs don't work the i think one of the big ones is expectations and resources allocated to it for example i'm going to make this person in charge of digital transformation oh my gosh that's sort of like saying well i'm going to make one person in charge of diversity and inclusion oh my gosh these are mindset questions. And when you look at the plethora of choices that are out there, if you haven't done the, the work on having a clearly defined strategy, then it's very likely you're gonna be running yourself thin across the board. And then when you set that against your expectations, well, you've touched the surface and, and you haven't given enough resources to make this actually work. Yeah. And another thing, you haven't given the time and the honesty to look at why it screwed up. The, the le lessons learned element means, oh, I fucked up, Paul. I, why, did I, why did this screw up? And are you able to say that in front of your employees and team? And, and or what can we learn from this? What can I learn from this? Well, this is what I learned. And here's what's going to happen, Paul. I'm going to change. And how am I going to change? I'm going to do something differently. For example, the social media stuff, I've delegated all that out. We have a great team, but I don't like social media. You know, not for me. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So I'm not saying you have to become a Facebook nut or a clubhouse, you know, aficionado, but at least get on the program and understand it. Spend hours with your daughter on why she's on Instagram. Go and, I mean, checking stuff out. So doing that digital means being digital for me. And it doesn't mean you have to have, you know, a massive presence, but if you don't understand what's going on, then you're just going to say yes 
to whatever your agency or your young social media manager proposes to you because you don't know shit. And I think that also is the case for augmented reality, VR, whatever other technologies are out there. Until you've explored them, you, you don't feel them. And when we talk about, I, I talk a lot about the need for empathy. You can intellectually read a Wall Street Journal article, Financial Times, and read about you know the growing trend for this and the growing trend for that. Oh, I get it. Oh, that's really interesting. I'll send a memo to everybody. Let's explore this growing trend. But you don't really understand it. And while, of course, you have many priorities when you're especially at the top of a large organization, you need to carve out the time, be strategic in that stupid limited 24 hours that we have mm -hmm. to do it. And, and here's the, like I would say, the key, the ones that opens us all up. If you have a strong north, it's going to be so much more evident what you need to study and what you need to do. Because you don't want to study everything, of course, yeah. right? you got to be strategic. Otherwise, you'll go crazy, you'll burn out. So the, the real thing is upstream, figure out who you're trying to be, you as an individual, you as an organization. And then that just clears the way to figure out what you need to be experimenting on, who needs to be part of that, and what you don't need to be doing, saying no to shit. Yeah. You discuss also in the book sort of issues around trust between consumers and brands at the moment and that it is quite low. There is a growing body of research out there, I guess it suggests, particularly in the US, some of the research I've read recently said, although it may be low between brands and consumers, in some cases, brands are actually higher in terms of the trust equation than some of the state institutions and political institutions and so on. So there's, there's a positive, I guess, there in terms of the relationship in some respects between brands and consumers. What can brand leaders do to, I guess, positively capitalize on that, to, to ensure that that level of trust that currently exists between brand and consumer, whatever level it happens to be, that they can use that to, to build their sense of purpose, to build their relationship with society and to build their, their social credentials as well. So two short answers. One is don't copycat and two, don't rush it. Mm -hmm. So when you mentioned other, some companies are trusted, I'm going to guess they aren't those schlocky companies that keep on spouting out things, running promotions and doing screaming marketing. What it is is probably going to be the Patagonias, the Ben and Jerry's, mm -hmm. the, the companies, maybe even Starbucks that can be big and yet seem to have a positive narrative around what they're trying to do, which is more about being meaningful to a larger community than to their bottom line and their shareholders. And so when you want to create that kind of trust, you need to create your own story mm -hmm. and you don't borrow somebody else's story. There are so many causes out there. Don't just jump onto one because, oh, that's cool, you know, find the one that's more strategically aligned and then you need to create some stronger deep links into it then that becomes the narrative because afterwards you don't control what they're saying but you can control how you're positioning it and part of the narrative i highly recommend is tapping into something that's personal in your story as the ceo yeah. so when i would go to uh, japan for example i was running redkin worldwide and one of the 40 countries we're in was japan so obviously I speak a little bit of Japanese, uh, but it's a very different culture. It was the most different culture that I had to deal with of the 40. And, um, and I just had this extraordinary experience because I also went there knowing that my grandfather had been killed by the Japanese in the Second World War. 
in in no uncertain terms an ugly experience yeah. and so what was the story minter was going to carry in there was he going to be begrudging was he going to... so i found and i have it right beside me for those who can't see of course i have a, a pen and i actually wrote the story about the death how he was killed in the second world war it's a film and a book i wrote that story in my with my fountain pen because i'm old-fashioned uh, and my fountain pen is a japanese fountain pen a pilot pen Mm -hmm. So when I told them that story, so I wasn't being hiding from the fact that my grandfather had been killed by the Japanese, but I told them that story. And I told it in a way that, you know, was, let's say, just true. I was, I was telling them I obviously didn't feel happy about the way my grandfather was killed. Many of them felt, by the way, embarrassed, which, of course, is complicated with face. But I also told them about my genuine appreciation of this pen. And, and why I could have chosen many pens, but this is the pen that I wrote with. And you know, when writing a book, it's, it's a long work. I wrote it by, by hand. That's what I wanted to do. It was about my grandfather and I wanted to have this a, a manual labor, a labor of love. Yes. And so that's the point I'm, I'm bringing into this. I didn't, I didn't win them over because I said that right, right away because you have to build it up over time. It's not something you rush. Anyway, there are some points. Thank you. Data has been game changer for many businesses in terms of its ability to to quickly and comprehensively analyze customer purchasing decisions and and so on but i also wonder whether it removes some of the intuition that traditionally sits within the minds of, of leaders and ceos and whether we have as a business community gone too far towards leaning on data as the trusted source of all wisdom in business and have removed our own intuition or, or don't trust our own intuition to the degree that we should. And in my mind, it should be a marriage between the data that is provided and the intuition that we, we carry as an individual that got us to a role as a leader in the first place. What's your view on that? Do you think we have drifted too far or have become over-reliant on, on data selves rather than human intuition? Uh, yes. And the, I think that, A, we were programmed that way when you go to business schools, you know, it's all about P&Ls, the other one, profit and loss, right? <laughs> Not, um, and, uh, and second of all, it's very reassuring. It's like, you know, these are the numbers I've heard. It's just about, it's like the conversation about beauty. And, and there's really leadership is, is, is an art and a science. Mm -hmm. There's the scientific, you have to have numbers, of course. But it's not because you have to have numbers that it's at the mercy or at the expense of the beautiful part, the intuition part, and the art part. So, I, I, I mean, when you, when you read the Isaacson story of, of Steve Jobs, when he talks about looking at the behind the fence, white picket fence and the yeah. painting of that part, that's a mindset. Mm -hmm. And and so within that mindset and empathy being a core, not that I'm saying Jobs is an empathic individual, <laughs> probably far from it. Um, but that, that mindset of wanting to get into the shoes, the messiness, the emotions of the individuals, you can't put that in some data bank. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think that we, we tend to be reassured by the data, the facts. I want the truth, dude. But the stories, which are imbued with emotion, tap into our, our deeper selves. This is actually what moves us. So as much as we are always seeking facts to reassure, 
we need to allow us to flow into that intuition and 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 understand our emotions our own emotions much less the emotions of others and and you don't get that from data data sources yeah yeah you mentioned at the front end of that answer alluded to the PL balance sheet uh, and i know in your book you talk about profits as an outcome not as an objective um we live in a world now where there's a lot of focus on unicorns and VCs and Series A funding getting their return back very quickly and billionaires and millionaires and develop an app and so on. I wonder whether that sort of cultural shift in business has almost distorted people's ambition behind their entrepreneurial startup and some leaders has distorted some leaders' views of what business is ultimately there for. I agree. Absolutely, it has to be there for profit, but you have to have a a driving passion and purpose behind that business with profit being the outcome. And I just wanted to get your your view of the celebrity status of tech titans and unicorns and whether that has diminished the value of other aspects of business. All right, so I have three points to this answer. First is cash is king. So if you don't have cash, don't go around trying to fix the world. Yeah. You've got to get cash in food on the plate. And I understand. All right, that's cool. Second is when you look at this model, and I talk about this a lot in the cha second chapter about governance, you need cash, you need investment, the shareholder. All right, so you've decided to take that share. That's a decision you make, especially if you're you know, in charge, if you will. And then the other problem is you might inherit a situation where you have a publicly traded company and you're the CEO, you've been parachuted in to solve the situation. You still need to pay their shareholders and shareholders haven't really evolved despite the CEO letter about having all our stakeholders and so on and so forth. It's not just profits, but so you need to understand who your ownership and that really will weigh in on how much liberty you have to go down a bigger route and create that purpose and trust and, yep. and, uh, and, and be more full. The third thing is really finding the North of your company. And when you're trying to be profitable, if you, you put that at the service of a bigger community. You need to explain how they're all contributing to that and being successful. Mm. So it's not one at the expense of the other because you need to be practical. But so often we just completely discard it. Like, uh, it would be nice to talk about that, but I don't have time. Or it just becomes bullshit coming out of my mouth because I'm not really believing it myself. So there has to be a, a deeper work, understand what you're about, who is your community. And, and I like to think of it as A, something that's realistic. I mean, not like we're going to solve feeding people on Mars. That's just ludicrous. You know, some people go for big ones, but I think it's better to have a realistic one. And, and then one that you will try to make live from the inside out so that the mission that you have doesn't skip you over. And I'll give you an example and I don't remember if I talk about it in the book, but it's something that sort of riled me up is Amazon. Great company, certainly doing great things, quite necessary in the pandemic, sure. And they have this incredible mission. Bezos is, is obviously big, you know, he dreams big, goes big. And his mission is to be the most customer-centric mm -hmm. organization on this earth. That's the words that he uses. Well, I call him out on that. He has... I don't know how many tens of thousands of employees. And the question I have for him and them is how does that make their days better? 
How does that make their lives better? All right, so some of them on a Saturday morning are exhausted. They go back online to buy something because they didn't have time because they had to work 12 hours a day. So they use Amazon because they have a 20% employee discount or something, I guess, and that's it. So the point is, how do you make it come alive for you, the mission of the company? So benefits and makes you grow personally, CEO on down, yeah. and then to the customer. So being customer centric is great, but make your mission speak from the inside out. And that's, that's a key point for me. Yeah, that makes sense. As we sort of come towards the end of the, the conversation, I wondered what were the the three key points that you wanted listeners to to take away from the conversation those that perhaps most succinctly represent the essence of the book and the message behind it well the first uh is to carve out some time <laughs> to think about who you are uh the the, the small story i have there is I, time management is obviously how you lead you do you spend time with your kids? Do you spend time with your loved ones and friends? All right. I don't, and it's not a question of balance, by the way, it's a choice, right? I don't have time to read. That's a choice. Um, so I, I say, find, spend, spend the time, carve out the time. And when I was running a Redkin, for example, or Canada, I would ask my assistant to block out 50% of every day, no meetings. The very few people operate that way. Oh, I don't have the time to meet you. I don't have the time to see. Well, I had the time to manage the unexpected shit that came down the road because that always happened. And by the way, sometimes I didn't, you know, <laughs> mea culpa, I wasn't always perfect in this, but that was my intention, right? Yeah. I wanted to make sure I had the time to deal with the unexpected shit. I wanted to make sure I had the time to go out and listen to the customer. I wanted to make sure that I had the time to write with more like a Pomodoro technique my strategic notes. And I also wanted the time for someone to crash into me and just tell me, you know, hey, listen, I just opened up a new account. Great. Or, oh, something's happened at home. My baby uh, is at the crash and doesn't work or whatever, but uh, okay. So that for me is, is about managing your time. Find the time to explore who you are. Mm -hmm. And I say that's a really important one. The second one is be uh, more strategic in and be more digital. So, uh, for example, you know, the audio is a big deal. We're, we're podcasting. Are, are, you, are you exploring audiobooks? Or, no, no, I only really like to read the paperback book because I like the smell. Okay, great. You can stay with the old-fashionedness or you can get with the program and just see what it's like to listen to an audiobook. See how it's findable, the discovery. Look at the whole environment. What's it like to read on a Kindle? Just, I mean, that's if it's relevant to you or, yeah. or go, go visit Clubhouse. So be, be more digital, go explore more digital, but do it in a way that's strategic um, so that it links back into what you're trying to achieve. And the third one I'm going to say is, um, is, is look at meaningfulness. And so as much as purpose is a great idea, the question is how much of your day is meaningful? Mm -hmm. Not just doing what you got to do, and if you can identify what's meaningful, which hopefully you've done when you figured out who you are, then also make sure that you, your team is getting meaningfulness out of it. That can include knowing how they're contributing to the overall strategy of the company, 
knowing why you're asking them to do certain things. Hey, listen, uh, Paul, would you mind? I, I need you to do, you know, run an errand for me, whatever. Uh, it's a menial task. All right, you're going to demean me and make me do an errand. Or, hey, Paul, listen, I have a meeting with two prospective customers or shareholders or whatever, and they, one of them has a specific allergy to peanuts. We don't have it in the cafeteria. Would you mind going out and getting a sandwich that doesn't have peanuts? Well, if that doesn't make your errand much more meaningful, what does, right? Yeah. So even if it's mean, de demeaning, if you add meaning to it, uh, and you can do that with so many more things. So add more meaningfulness into your day. It's a little bit philosophical, but I, there, is a, there is a practical element to it, yeah. which is spend the time to describe why you're trying to do what you're trying to do. Linda, thank you so much for your time on the new PL today. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Paul. Thank thanks you. for having me on. Thank you. So thanks very much for listening to the conversation with Minter today. When we discussed his book, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. If you like what you've heard in the conversation with Minter, please go to the notes that accompany the podcast and check out Minter's website and also go to principlesandleadership.com and purchase his book. And don't forget to check out the links to the Carroll Consultancy, the sponsors of this monthly business book review club. Okay, now we're on to the conversation with personal development legend, Peggy McColl, where we're going to discuss with her, her new book, Savvy Wisdom. So Peggy, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for joining us on the new PL. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Um, we're here to today to discuss your, your latest book, Savvy Wisdom. Um, so I think it would be great for you to set the context for the discussion by giving us a bit of a background into what the essence of the book is and how you came to write it. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Savvy Wisdom is my 19th book and I have previously written 18 nonfiction books mm -hmm. and had never really thought about writing a fiction book. The idea didn't even enter my mind. And the reason is because I had paradigms, I had belief systems within me that I wasn't capable of writing that kind of book. Although over the years that I've studied personal and professional development, I've read thousands of books and some of my absolute favorite books are parables. Mm -hmm. So approximately November 1st, 2020, I sat down and I made a decision to write my first fiction book, but to write it in a way that would be not only entertaining and engaging, but teach some valuable lessons as well. And so I made a decision and I set the date when I would complete it. I gave myself 10 days to complete the book. Wow. And I didn't have a 10 day wide open schedule. I have a busy schedule, I'm running a business here. Mm -hmm. And so I just blocked off time. I went to my agenda and I blocked off time, morning, evening, afternoon, whenever there was some space so that I would ensure that the time was allocated to complete the project. Yeah. And I allowed, I allowed the ideas to flow I made a decision to base it on my own life and my own experiences and the understanding and knowledge that I've acquired from 42 years of study. I've been on this planet 62, but I started studying in January, 1979. And so that was really the basis. I just thought, you know what? I'd love to write a parable and something that really impacts people in a unique way. Yes. And I got on with the work. And the thing is like, if you start a book 
and it's not going the way you want, or it's not really the quality that you're looking for. Well, there's a number of different choices you have. You can hire a great editor. You could work with a ghostwriter. Mm -hmm. You could flush it. And so I started working with a woman that's actually on my staff, and she does coaching for fiction authors. I teach right. fiction writing. I teach nonfiction writing and all of that. But I, I told her what I was doing. And I said, I'd like you to be there so that every time I write a chapter, give me feedback. So I know whether this is going in the right direction or not. And so after I wrote the first chapter, which was an absolute blast, I had so much fun <laughs> writing it. It, it. You know, the fun thing about writing a, a parable or a fiction book is you can go anywhere. Yes. It really involves tapping into your own imagination and let it fly. Mm -hmm. I started the book. I didn't know what the book was going to be called. I didn't know the ending. I didn't even know the ending until the 10th day. So that's really what, what prompted it. I just made a decision. I was going to do it. I got on with the work and uh, just allowed it to go easily and harmoniously and smoothly. And it did. Yes. There's a, a rich heritage in the personal development industry, particularly around using parables to deliver messages around personal growth. Yes. Why do you think the concept of a parable continues to resonate with so many people what 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 is inherent in a parable that that people cling to emotionally well i believe it's because that people remember stories more than they remember ideas mm -hmm. and think about movies that you've seen that have impacted you in a very positive way you know movies that have a powerful message and people will talk about them for years and tell their friends about it and watch them together and study them and i find with parables because they're they're blending story with valuable ideas that it definitely keeps the reader more engaged and i think it's a very effective way of teaching of teaching yes. ideas and engaging people and like think about our children you know when when our children are young and we're reading them stories you know stories from children's books and you know what keeps their little wide eyes open it's because of the story right and we're not any different as adults mm -hmm. we really aren't so that's what i find to be the tremendous benefit in a parable and as i said i love parables and i have read many of them over the years and yes. you know they really stay with you when you when you absorb the messages in them yes the the key phrase in the first chapter that really sets the the tone and context for the book is if you want life to change you must change and i wondered what the key elements of that that change that transformation the key components needed to facilitate that change what are they yeah that's a that's a great question i actually have a handkerchief with the, <laughs> the words embroidered on it right here if you want your life to change you must change i believe what the context is of that message is to help people understand that the challenges that you're experiencing, the results that you're experiencing in your life are impacted by you, by how you're feeling. I honestly don't believe people understand the impact of our emotions and how they're playing such a significant role in what's showing up in our life. And I think it also speaks to that tremendous power that we all have within us that is so untapped, tapped. It really is, it's untapped. And so if you want your life to change, it's not going to occur by something outside of you or by sitting and wishing and hoping that something's going to happen or the lottery win is going to come in. It really involves recognizing that that power to change your life 
resides within you. And for me, when I started the very, very first personal development seminar that I went to in January 1979, that was one of the key messages that I heard. I, I didn't even want to go to the seminar, I was kind of forced to go to the seminar, but I went reluctantly and I'm so glad I did. And that was one of the messages that I heard that evening. And that message, if you want your life to change, you must change, has completely not only changed the direction of my life, but it continues to impact me in a very positive way, even to this day. Yes. Who was the seminar? Who was presenting the seminar in 1979? Bob Proctor. It was. And you're still working with Bob now. He's endorsed your book. Yeah, well, Savvy, as you know, Savvy Wisdom is based on a character by the name mm -hmm. of Savvy that I created. Savvy is really Bob. Right. So actually, about an hour ago, I sent him a message and I said, hey, Savvy. And I signed it Sophie, because as you know, Sophie is the yes. other main character in the book. And that's me, uh, loosely based on my life. And so Bob, Bob and I have been friends. He's 87 on his next birthday. And as I mentioned, I'm 63. And you know, when I met him, I was a young woman and, and extremely in a you know very dark place. And so, you know, I started a study with Bob and I became an addict in a very good way for mm -hmm. these materials be because of the feeling states that I was personally experiencing. I just made a decision. I'm going to study this for the rest of my life. Yes. You mentioned your own sort of challenging period there. And early in the book, you discuss I guess the lack of options that many people believe they have in life and you like right. it to a dark room yes. um, and right at the moment with the pandemic probably many people in business feel this way as well with the tremendous challenges that they are experiencing personally and professionally and your book suggests that if you if you can't see the way out you need to shift your focus slightly and you will start to see the light For right those that are currently feeling that challenge from a business and personal perspective how do they know where to shift their focus to? You know, what are the tools they need to recognize where the light is in that darkened room? Yeah, it's so true. Well, I, I look at the light as awareness. Mm -hmm. It really is an expansion of awareness. And even reading Savvy Wisdom can expand your awareness. You know, I went to a seminar in January 1979 and my awareness expanded. You know, I heard Bob Proctor on stage say, if you want your life to change, you must change. But I also heard him say this. He said... He quoted Vernon Howard and Vernon Howard said, if you want to escape from a prison, you have to know you're in one. And I was in a prison of my own making. And I think that's important to understand is that, we, you know, we put ourselves into these dark places. We don't realize it. And of course, when you're in a dark place, which is where I was. So as you know, in Savvy Wisdom, it starts with this girl who went to a park to sit on a park bench because she was determining how she was going to end her life. That was me. I was there, I was in that dark place. I know what it feels like to not want to go on, to just wanna give up on life and it's dark. And all you're seeing is just the darkness and more of the darkness and you're not even having a glimmer of hope. But what creates that awareness and that light is really to go to a, a different place, another mm -hmm. thinking space. And as you know, in Savvy Wisdom, Savvy advises Sophie to start to think about what, what's great in your life right? He suggests that to her. Just think about Sophie, what's great in your life? And of course, in her mind, she doesn't even want to think about it. And, you know, when, when people get in that place, it's almost like they're angry. It's like, I don't want to think about what's great in my life. And so, you know, he invites her, you know, just promise me you're going to do that for the next week and let's meet. And he gets her to commit 
It's just a one simple little exercise. So what does she do? She starts a gimme journal, G-I-M-Y, great in my life. And so she starts by, you know, taking action, right? Not just, you know, understanding or philosophizing an idea going, oh, that's an interesting idea, but doing it, like really doing it. Okay, so what's great in my life? And, and that creates this little window of light, right? And then when you start to think of something, even if it's one thing, I woke up this morning, right? Oh, there's one thing. It's like a glimmer of light comes in. Well, what else is great? Well, I'm healthy. What else is great? I have my mind and it's working, right? And then it just starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so that's really what it what it involves. So it can take a, a seismic shift in frame of mind to, you know, mm -hmm. to move away from a school of thought that the foundation of which was probably formed in childhood and reinforced by yes. actions ever since. And that, you know, those actions serve to to compound that pattern over years and, and often in decades. True. How do we find the strength to lift that metaphorical mountain, if you like, to break the incumbent frame of mind when our arms are figuratively and literally tired from carrying the burden of these thought patterns? Right. I absolutely understand what you're talking about. Been there. And, you know, I think about as you're asking the question, Paul, I think of, you know, what did I learn as a child? And as you yes. know, in Savvy Wisdom, my mother was suicidal as well. And, yeah. and so in the book, you know, I share a story of how my mom had cut the the uh, hose, you know, cut one end of the hose and stuck it in the window of the car, cut the other end of the hose and stuck it in the exhaust pipe, closed the garage door and turned on the car with an attempt to kill herself. That really happened. I mean, that that was very real. So where was she? Well, she was in obviously a very dark place. And I believe what it takes to, to get out of there is, is like one step at a time. It's like that quote that goes like this. You don't have to see the whole staircase, just take the first step. Yes. And I, and I think sometimes when people get overwhelmed like that, they, you know, they, they may even recognize what's necessary to do, but it, that, you know, that the step or the process to get out of it also feels overwhelming. But if you just do one thing, you know, one thing, you know, one thing to just expand your understanding, expand your awareness. Like if I look back to January, 1979, when I started, I went to that seminar, well, I signed up that night. I registered for a series of eight weeks of seminars. Why? Because I knew that there was a lot going on within me that needed some revision. Not that there's anything wrong with somebody, but this process of changing our life to create better results absolutely takes time. And a lot of people are frustrated with that. They're like, I want it now, and I want it now, and I want it now, and I want it now. And where I think a lot of people are really challenged with is this understanding of this law of gestation. And the law of gestation decrees that there will be a period of time that will elapse before all things move into form. And that's both good and bad, right? It's, it's with anything. Like for me, when I started the personal development, and as you know, I was in a place of, of uh, wanting to end my life. That's a dark place to be. And uh, it took time. It took, it took huge discipline because I had to get away from the habitual patterns of thought and feeling that I had been previously involved in for many, many years up to that point. So if you discipline yourself and you get focused on it and you make a committed decision, I am absolutely committed to turning my life around, then you get on with the work. You start by studying. You start by understanding you and you get the understanding through the study but without the study the understanding is going to be challenged 
And even to this day, and as you know, I've been studying this for over 40 years, I am exceedingly disciplined. So I have rituals, if you will, that I'm involved in every single day that I do. Now, did I start day one? Boom, I'm doing all these things every single day to put myself in this positive state of mind. No, it took time. It took you know, a, a process that, that, you know, worked over a number of years. And I remember in the 80s, in the early 1980s, I remember I was in Toronto. I used to live in Toronto, born and raised in Toronto. I was on Young Street, downtown Toronto. And I happened to walk by a store and I saw my reflection in the mirror. Now, previously, if I saw my reflection, whether it was in a mirror or in a, a window, I would just like, ew, you know, it was, you know, not a good response. And it was like an automated response, obviously from an insecure person at that time. And I remember walking by the store window and glancing and seeing, it wasn't a mirror, it was a reflection and stopping and, and thinking, oh my goodness, I feel so much better. And, and now did that happen by accident? Did that happen just you know one day because I decided to feel good today? It happened because of the discipline that I was involved in over a longer period of time until I got to that point where I was like, oh, okay, I'm finally starting to feel better. So you've talked about the journey being one step at a time. You've talked about your own 40 year to date sort of road on that journey. We, we live in a world largely of instant gratification now where we feel that true something needs to be fixed and fixed straight away and, and we look externally as you alluded to before to to seek uh that that solution to the problem so how do we mark when we start on this journey we take these single steps what are the most effective ways to mark the milestones to encourage the commitment to take that next step because you've mark that one and you can see progress and you move forward and you move forward right. how do we effectively mark those milestones that's a great question i believe it's it's like think about in corporate in the corporate world i was in the corporate world i've i've held a number of jobs i was a national marketing manager i was a vice president for a dot-com company as well and we used to do these things called performance evaluations and what are performance evaluations well they're based on results right mm -hmm. We look at, you know, what's, what are the requirements of the job and did you do it? Did you overachieve? Did you underachieve? Where are the challenges? And let's fix it, right? Performance improvement programs as well. We used to have those PIPs in school. And I believe that's also effective for us individually. Not that you're going to judge yourself or criticize yourself. It's just a matter of noticing, right? Noticing, you know, where are you and what could you do even better than you've been doing before. You see, I always, I take responsibility for my results. I run a business and I've been running my business now for 26 years. So if I look at the results of the business and if there's any part of that that's dissatisfaction, then I know it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to grow. It's an opportunity for me to study something, do something better, more effectively. So that's the way I look at things. And I believe it's a constant process of simply evaluating something else that I'm very involved in. And I've been doing this for many, many years is being in accomplishment mode. What do I mean by that? It's where I have outcomes that are clearly designed. Like I know exactly what I'm, what I'm looking to create. And that's, that's in my life in general. You know, I have a goals journal, of course. I have my goals all outlined, but weekly. So I take it down. I distill it down to weekly. So every week I set 
accomplishments for that week. And then what I do is I have an accomplishment partner and my accomplishment partner and I are accountable for each other. And every week I send him my list and I do an update from the previous week. And that's the part where you notice progression, right? Or decline. So if you're doing an update from the previous week and you look at, I set these objectives and yet, you know, nowhere close, I'll look at that as an observer and just say, oh, well, what can I do better? What can I do more effectively? Or do I even really want that, right? It gives you that chance to evaluate. And I have found by getting into that practice of doing that on a regular basis that it absolutely has heightened the results and accelerated the results as well. There was a study done by Brigham Young University in, in the US many, many years ago that said that if you do this, like if you get with an accountability partner and you're in accomplishment mode, that there's a 95% chance that you will actually get the things done that you set as objectives. Mm -hmm. And so think about that 95% chance. Well, I like those odds <laughs> and I like to set myself up for success so that it's easy and simple and not complicated and hard. Yes. Yeah. There's a continued focus on the importance of gratitude throughout your book. And I, and I feel gratitude's long been a quite an underrated virtue in society more, more generally speaking. Um, and I guess that lack of recognition is accentuated by the acquisition culture, I guess, we have now where we right. are encouraged to buy more, do more and be more consistently. Do you think the pandemic will help us to refocus, broadly speaking, on being more grateful for the seemingly small but infinitely more important things that form the foundation of our lives, I guess? Oh, so true. You're absolutely right. Like I, I look at the, the pandemic as an experience as we've never experienced before. And yet it has been a blessing. It's been a blessing. And that may sound strange. It may sound a little unusual. And I, I'm not saying it's a blessing, the destruction or how people have been hurt or how people have died. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But there's blessings and there's goodness in every adversity. There, there always is. Sometimes it's a little more challenging to find it. But I found for myself, because in my entire career, I've always traveled, you know, from early on in, in whatever role I was playing, I had jobs where I was traveling around the world. And every month I was traveling somewhere, going somewhere. So for an entire year now, I've been home and it has been wonderful, absolutely <laughs> wonderful. I love it. Now, I, I love travel too, but yes. I've really enjoyed being home. I also believe that this experience has allowed people to really understand what is most important to you? And are your values in place? And are you living by your purpose? You know, these are really important questions to ask. And I, I really believe that what it's doing is it's revealing to people what was already inside. Wayne Dyer, who was a wonderful author, uh, a great speaker. He was a client of mine as well at one point. And I remember Wayne Dyer said the following. He said, if you squeeze an orange and orange juice comes out, it's because it was in there. Mm -hmm. And we think about what does that really mean? It means when you're up against challenges, adversity, you know, what we've been experiencing in the world with the pandemic, and you get squeezed, which many people have become squeezed, what's coming out? Is fear coming out? You know, is is a disillusionment coming out? It's because it was in there. Mm. Like I remember the day, I, I remember where I was standing when I heard that the world had a pandemic going on. And I remember thinking this strange feeling. And the strange feeling that I felt was 
I feel calm. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wondered, why am I feeling so calm when we don't even know what this means, right? I didn't know it was going to wipe out half the population. And of course, everybody starts to think about themselves and their own family and their own experiences, etc. But I felt this sense of calm. And I just felt strong. And the only reason why I felt that is because of the building of the emotional muscles that I've done for so many years that I feel strong inside. And it's like unshakable now. And I've been through a lot in my life, but that didn't occur by accident. That occurred on purpose. It occurred by being committed and buying, being disciplined all these years. So gratitude is an emotion that will cause you to feel good. Anytime I'm feeling out of alignment, I just think about what am I grateful for? What can I appreciate in my life mm -hmm. right now? And I have so much to appreciate, so much to appreciate. We all do. And people tend to forget that. So with even with Savvy Wisdom, you know, when, when Savvy said to Sophie, what's great in your life, Sophie? You know, that just creates an, a sense of appreciation. It involves gratitude. It really connects you to something that feels good. And the truth is, when you're feeling good, you're attracting good. Simple, yes, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. You touched on a couple of times in that answer the importance of living congruently with your purpose uh, and having that at the heart of what you do. Your book talks a lot about encouraging people to find their passion, and you describe it as passion as the fuel that propels your success. Yes. I'm really interested in the wider discourse around passion or the discussion around passion, do you think there is a fundamental misconception when it comes to passion that people believe if you find your passion in life that somehow <laughs> success will come easier when in fact uncovering passion is simply the opportunity to go on the road that you need to be on. You still have to build that road. Right. Right. It's like, do what you love and the money will follow. It's like, <laughs> that's like a dangerous comment, right? And I know a lot of people think that. And I've seen it over the years from working with so many entrepreneurs and want to be entrepreneurs is that, oh, I just connect to my passion and then boom, it's going to be an easy ride. And then they discover, ah, not so much. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, even when I incorporated my company, you know, my father was a janitor who worked in a, uh, you know, worked at, for a town hall. And my mother was a factory worker and for many, many years. So my parents weren't entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so when I decided I'm going to, and I, I barely made it through high school as well. And I graduated, but no interest in going beyond that in education. Nothing against it. It just, at that time, I was not interested. I disliked school. And so I just got on, got into the working space and I loved working. I loved earning money. And so when I decided to incorporate a company as an entrepreneur is following my passion, because I was in love with this mm -hmm. idea of personal and professional development. I remember like my parents and other people saying, do you realize how many businesses, you know, fail within, you know, X number of years? And you're just like a kid who doesn't want to hear what they're saying. It's like they cover their ears and go, nah, 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 nah. Like, you know, that's kind of the way I was. I wasn't doing that physically, but in my mind, I'm just not letting it in. I'm not letting it in. Or they'd say, you know, most businesses fail between us. Like, I'm not going there. Yeah, well, you don't know that. It's like, I'm not letting it in. I'm not accepting of those ideas. I only see the outcome. That's all I'm focusing on. I'm thinking about Napoleon Bonaparte says, I only see the... Op, the uh, outcome, the obstacles give way. 
you know, and that's, that's what happens, right? Was it a challenge? Sure. But I started my business part-time while I was working full-time. And when I got to a point where I felt a little more comfortable with letting go, right? Like releasing the shore and going out and sailing on my own. That's when I made the decision. Was it scary? Absolutely. I was a single mom at the time. I had a little boy. He was in private school. I owned a home. I had the responsibility of all of that. You know, I had to take care of us. I was the, the breadwinner in the family. But what I found, that was leverage for me. That was a driver for me. It really created that, that desire to be successful. Also, I wanted to be a model for my son. I wanted to show him what's possible, regardless of where you come from, that you can create success no matter you know who you are, where you came from, or what you've done or haven't done in the past. Yes. And I found that that influenced him as well. So that became my, my driving factor. Also in the 90s, when I incorporated my company, I created a purpose for my life, for myself. And that purpose is to make a positive and beneficial contribution to the lives of millions. Did I know how I was going to do that? No. But at any time I was given an opportunity, I would just ask myself, is this in alignment with my purpose or not? Yeah. If it is, I'm doing it. If it's not, I'm not doing it. Think about savvy wisdom, the idea to write that book. Is this in alignment with my purpose or not? Absolutely, it's in alignment with my purpose. When Wayne Dyer wanted me to help him promote one of his books, when Miriam Williamson wanted to hire me, is this in alignment with my purpose mm -hmm. in life? Absolutely, it's in alignment. And I find that when you know it and you understand it and you choose to live by it, decisions are easy. But as far as success is concerned in building that road to success, there is, you know, some people think, oh, I don't want to work for somebody else, or I'd like to, you know, be my own boss, and I don't want to work weekends. I don't think I ever worked harder than mm -hmm. when I started my business. Also, I don't have an attitude that I'm open nine to five and I shut down at whatever. My business is a big part of my life, and I love it. And it never feels like work. I get up in the morning and I'm enthusiastic to get into work, to help people, to do the work that I'm doing. And so there's definitely a big commitment involved. It's going to take some time, but you must discipline yourself. The key to discipline is action, as you've highlighted today. And the book talks a lot about the, the importance of doing more than just visualizing and manifesting. But, you know, that, that can be hope, but only action delivers reality, I guess. And, and right. Um, I wondered why is writing down your goals, your aspirations, your milestones, which again, you touch on in the book, why does that add so much weight to the process? What power does that generate in the mind when you physically put pen on paper to mark those milestones, note down those goals? I love that question. You know, as my friend Bob Proctor says, writing stimulates thinking. I like how we, you know, just three words, writing stimulates thinking. And that's the reason right now it's giving it attention and what you give attention to expands. Mm -hmm. So it's holding an idea with your will, but intentionally taking a pen and writing it down on paper will give it attention for that period of time. Yes. The book also touches on the tremendous power we all have inside of us. And again, you mentioned that a little earlier. And it goes on to discuss power of wisdom and understanding and unlocking that power. And you state, when you expand your awareness, your understanding intensifies. I wanted to put that into context in a slightly broader question. When we look out to the world, we seem to be living in one that is awash with information, but 
perhaps increasingly starved of the expansion of awareness due to the echo chambers that we operate within on social media. So we, we seek information to confirm rather than to expand and to grow awareness and understanding. What lessons can this book teach us about how to use a thirst of knowledge, not just for information, but as the first step to unlocking that understanding and that tremendous power? Yeah, you know, I think what it really involves is recognizing that you don't have to go too far, right, mm -hmm. to, to get this information. You could use savvy wisdom and study savvy wisdom. I have a client who lives in the UK, and she has now read the book three times. She's on her fourth time. The book is coming out in Audible, like through audible.com as well. She's looking for it. I gave her a sneak peek at the audio version. Bob Proctor and I recorded it in his studio and so I really believe that it involves a uh, repetition, repetition of the ideas, repetition of the information. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's certain books that I have, like even Savvy Wisdom, like I wrote it, I've already read it. I've reread it a few times. I keep a copy here in my office. Actually, I have several copies. My grandson came here last week and he was taking some of the copies and he was putting them away. I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, you already have a copy on your desk. I said, I like having copies everywhere yes. because I you know, pick them up and I'll, I'll read them. And so I think it's, uh, you know, I really find that today, especially more than ever, there's so much information out there. And and people are feeling almost confused. Where do I go? What do I study? What do I read? And I will often suggest to people is, there's an expression that I heard years ago that goes like this, by their fruits, you will know them. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you want to study people that have demonstrated that they understand the materials, have applied the materials, and are getting great results. Yes. You don't want to study people who, you know, maybe they have some knowledge, but they're obviously not living it. They obviously haven't, uh, haven't experienced it. And the work that I do, like I've been working with authors for many years. I have 19 books, as you know, and, and I help authors. And sometimes I'll see authors who are writing books on, uh, let's say, prosperity as an example. And they'll go on a payment plan for my program, and yet their payments get declined. Their second payment gets declined. Then we have to chase them. and they don't. So it's like, okay, so help me understand, why are you releasing a book on you know, prosperity when you're not experiencing it yourself. And so I say to people like, just take a look around. It's easy to see what kind of results people have, you know, just mm -hmm. study them. We're so exposed nowadays, more so than ever with social media, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I also believe another tool that you can use to make decisions on what you're going to study and how you're going to study is intuition. Mm -hmm. And then recommendations as well. I have a, another book here on my desk that I study daily. And it's a book by Ernest Holmes. It's called This Thing Called You. And this is one of the best books I've ever read. And if you look at my book, it's highlighted and, mm -hmm. you know, there's underlined. And I've read this book many times. I read it every day. And so I think that, and you could do that with savvy wisdom. You know, I've had people tell me, I've read it multiple times, like that lady in, in the UK. And so the reason why you do that is because it's not that you're going to discover something that wasn't there before. You discover something within you that you yes. didn't recognize was there before. That's the benefit to continual study. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on that point. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that Actually, this book is reflective of your own life, which I didn't realize Sophie was effectively you, or you were Sophie. 
Yes. I wondered what you learned about yourself writing this book. What, what was the, was it a cathartic experience after this long to, to put pen to paper and write about your life rather than 18 books of others? Yeah, it sure was. You know, it was an emotional experience for me. And, uh, and it was like a little bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> Although I personally like roller coasters um, because of the thrill of it. But what happened for me was first, the first thing was it was so exciting to write it. I was in love with the materials because I'm in love with life. I'm in love with my life. I'm in love with the journey that I've been on. I bless it and I appreciate it and give thanks for it every single day. So there was that part. But, you know, as you know, because you read Savvy Wisdom, there are other parts that weren't so enjoyable in my life, you know, losing my brother mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, being in a place of not wanting to live, my mother not wanting to live. And, and so that, that's painful. And yes. so when, when I had finished writing the book and, and I was in the process of getting it ready for production to release it to the world, I then felt an overwhelming sense of sadness and it was very strange. And I remember talking to a friend of mine going, why am I feeling like this? You know, and, and she said, well, it's, it's like you, it's like you dug up an old grave, if you will, you know, you, it's like, it's not that it was buried because I, I have chosen to have a happy childhood rather than the one that I really did have. And, but it, but it was a, a digging up, a stirring up of all this emotion that brought it back. And I also believe that as an author, when, when you're writing your book, that as close as you can get to the truth, in other words, really feel it, the better it's going to go with you communicating that message for your readers, like really authentically go there. What did that feel like? And so it's like an actor who portrays a role in a movie. They have to put on that suit, if you will, that, that persona of that mm -hmm. character that they're portraying. Think of Anthony Hopkins. Sir yes. Anthony Hopkins, he's been knighted. So Anthony Hopkins, who played Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, like he was on Oprah one time and Oprah asked him, he, she said to him, did you ever have a challenge after you finished filming Silence of the Lambs? Did you walk away from that and still feel that Hannibal Lecter persona? And he said, yeah, because mm -hmm. he, you know, it became a part of who he is. And so for me, when I went back in time and, and dug back into a dark time in my life, it brought back all those emotions. And so I had to release them. It's like, you know, Wayne Dyer, squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out. So it was in there, right? The sadness was still in there and it was coming out. I just had to release it. And, you know, you just got to understand we're human beings. You know, we're having a human experience as well. We're emotional beings. We're going to feel it. It's okay. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel distraught. It's okay to feel those emotions. Just understand it's part of the human experience. Just decide, am I going to stay there? You know, it's a destructive, like there's certain emotions that when we get involved in those emotions, they're mm -hmm. destructive, like fear, worry, guilt. They will destroy like the little Tasmanian devil that's going to go run around and destroy things. That's what they'll do. They'll, they'll, fear is a destructive emotion to feel. So when I was feeling even sadness, it wasn't a good emotion, but I allowed myself to feel it. And I just 
you know, got through it. It's just like a little journey I went on, got through it and out the other side. And it's like, okay, well, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> glad that's done. But it was, it was a painful experience. And you know something, Paul, I didn't expect that to happen. It surprised me when it hit me. It's like, what the heck's going on here? But I realized I was so emotionally involved in the writing of it that, that I didn't realize that I had also emotionally connected to those feelings and, and was expressing them as well. You had written 18 books prior to this. I wonder whether there was a subconscious apprehension. You've spent your whole life in, in the writing industry. You could have written this at any time. Right. Why did why was it your 19th, not your fifth or your seventh or your twelfth? You know, was there a first? <laughs> did you have to be in a position yourself to to be able strong enough to be able to let any potential emotion out that came with the writing of it? So true. And you know something, Paul, prior to November 1st, 2020, I had this belief. And the belief was, I'm not any good at writing. And I would be speaking at events and stand on stage. And, and part of the message was, you don't have to be a great writer to write a great book, because you can hire a great editor or hire a ghostwriter, which I had done with every one of my books, either hire a great editor or hired a ghostwriter. And so I had this belief, I used to stand on stage saying, I'm not a great writer. I don't consider myself a great writer. And then and when I made the decision to write it, I realized that was just something I was holding on to that was not serving me. And that if I just let that go, and because I'd been so involved in working with many different types of authors over the years, because I had written a number of my books, I realized, what is it? What is writing? You know, it's storytelling, it's engaging, it's bringing your reader in, it's having a connection, a one-to-one -one relationship with you and that reader. I knew enough to do it. And mm -hmm. so, you know what I did? I got out of my own way is really what I did. I got out of my own way and I decided I'm gonna create a new belief. And when I finished writing Savvy Wisdom, I sent it to my sister and I sent it to her because she's also in the publishing business. And she sent me back a reply. She sent me a text and she said, well, I guess you can no longer say that you're a crappy writer. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a compliment. That was her yeah. backhanded way of giving me a compliment, I suppose. <laughs> so just to, to wrap up, Peggy, what would be the, the one lesson or point or thought you would want to leave listeners with from this book? As it, I guess for us, as it relates to them as entrepreneurs or business owners as le or leaders. Yeah, I, I would say it's three words and three words that I learned many years ago that are so incredibly valuable that serve me then and serve me to this day. And that is be the source and be the source means that whatever it is that you want to experience in your own life, in your own business, be that source for other people. So if you'd like greater success, be the source of success, help other people create success. If you'd like to experience more happiness in your life, be the source of happiness. If you'd like to have more fun, be the source of more fun. If you want to have more appreciation, more gratitude, be the source of that too. Very simple three words. I think everyone should have it tattooed on their body somewhere. I don't have any tattoos, by the way. Maybe a henna tattoo you could do. But uh, be the source. It's a valuable idea and it absolutely has a, a profound way of uh, impacting your life in positive ways. And I think you can be the source of getting copies of Savvy Wisdom for everyone you know. One of my clients, she bought a copy for everyone in her reading group and they study it. They study it together. So there's a great way of being the source of great materials as well. Brilliant. Peggy, thank you so much for your time on the new PL. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be here and share. Thank you.
Thanks once again for listening to the conversation with Peggy McColl. If you like what you've heard in that conversation, go to the notes that accompany the podcast, check out Peggy's website. And if you'd like to order a copy of a book, please go to principlesandleadership.com and order through the website. If you've enjoyed both of the conversations on today's podcast, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. We genuinely appreciate it. And if you'd like to subscribe to the new PL and keep up to date with all our latest news and views, then go to principlesandleadership.com and either fill out the newsletter prompt on the homepage or scroll down to the bottom of it and fill in your details there. And just before we go, thank you once again to the sponsor of this podcast mini series, the Carol Consultancy Group, carolconsultancy.com. Finally, if this is your first introduction to the new PL, please do check out our other podcast series. We've got the new PL Conversations with Inspirational Business Leaders and Entrepreneurs, which we published every Wednesday each week, or the new PL to the Point, which is our weekly 10 minute analysis and summary of the big weekly interview. And we publish that every Friday. Or you can check out our brand new podcast series, which is launched later in March. It's called the New PL Voices Behind the Build Back. And we'll be speaking to inspirational small business owners and entrepreneurs, those smaller businesses who are working with real tenacity and creativity and innovation to successfully build back their businesses as we slowly emerge from the pandemic. So I'm Paul. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of the new PL Business Book Review Club. Have a great day and speak soon.